Well, good morning, and so glad you joined us today. Uh, we are now in our fifth week, uh, part five of our study of the Gospel of Mark. We're calling the cross and the crown. Hope you've been with us in the past. If not, you can check it out online and maybe get caught up just a little bit. Uh, Mark 8 and 9, where we're going today, are turning points in this, uh, in this series, in this story. And so very, very important things to share with you today and excited to have that opportunity. So if you have your Bible, turn to uh, Mark's Gospel. We'll be in the ninth chapter today. Whether you have your Bible, a tablet, or maybe you have your little uh, single devotional journal Bible that we gave you at Easter. But turn and find Mark chapter 9. So in January... January 25th of 2020, I was with a group in the Holy Land in Israel, and we took this picture. Uh, some, of the, some who were on that trip will remember this picture. I'll never forget this picture because I realized when I took the picture uh, that we were seeing something a little bit unusual. I wouldn't say rare, but at least unusual. I've been to the Holy Land several times, and uh, I guess out of 13, 14 trips there, I've only seen this twice. Uh, what this is a picture of is the Sea of Galilee. We were on the south end of the Sea of Galilee, and we looked up to the north, and to the north is a large mountain, as you can see, Mount Hermon. We might say Hermon. The Israelis would say Mount Hermon. It's in the upper part of the Galilee. It's actually miles away, and all we can see is just the snow-capped top. The reason it's unusual to see it is because often it's not clear enough. It is so far away. This mountain is really a significant mountain. It's an incredible mountain. It's the highest mountain in all of this region, Israel, Lebanon, Syria. It rises to over 9,000 feet above sea level, and many, many biblical events have taken place here. Now, many believe that one of those events, particularly significant, was the transfiguration of Jesus. Maybe you've heard of that before. If not, don't worry. We're going to go there in a few moments, and, uh, and we'll tell you the story of what happened there. Most believe that the Mount of Trans or the Transfiguration of Christ happened at this account. One, because it is a high mountain, and you'll see the significance of that in a moment. Secondly, it's in the Upper Galilee region where we know Jesus was just before this happened. And so today, we want to go further. We want to explore a little bit more about this kingdom and how this mountain refers to this kingdom. Now, first of all, let me recap just a little bit. You remember we've been talking a lot about the kingdom, the kingdom of God, this new kingdom that is to come, this kingdom that is an already but not yet kingdom, meaning that it was established when Jesus came. The resurrection, we said, was the inauguration of this kingdom. It has already begun, but it is not yet realized in its fullness. And then we saw that Jesus clearly claimed to be the king who had come to reign in this kingdom. And then we saw the conflict because not only is the new kingdom an already but not yet kingdom, the old kingdom, this earth, this world is an already but not yet. It's already been defeated, but not yet been destroyed. And so there's conflict between these two kingdoms. We've seen the result of that conflict. We've talked about that conflict and where that leads. We saw that Jesus began to uh, do miracles perform miracles, wonderful signs, and all kinds of supernatural things to affirm his authority, his authority to be king in this kingdom. He taught as one, with, as one who had authority was the testimony of the people who heard it. They would see him heal the sick. 
You would see him raise the, the, uh, uh, the, the lame to walk again and, and give sight to the blind. And, and everyone was amazed. But now today, interestingly, we're going to see that Jesus is more than just a miracle worker. Jesus is more than just someone going about doing miracles. He is indeed a king. He is the king. But interestingly, we're going to find that he is a unique king, an unusual king, a king different than was expected, different than even we might expect, different than we might even define. He's a king who's not on his throne. We're not going to see him on his throne, but we're going to see him on a cross, a little bit of a different thought. So we turn to Mark's gospel. We move to chapter nine. Let me set up the context and then we'll jump in. Now, the context is important because the disciples are now in the upper Galilean region, the region known as the Upper Galilee. It's north of the Sea of Galilee. It's several miles, a good day's journey, a good journey from the city of Capernaum. Jesus has brought his closest followers to an area known as Caesarea Philippi, named after Philip. And so Jesus is there for a purpose. He's there moving for a reason. Now, it, all of that is not evident when we first see him go there, but the more it unpacks, the more we see that reasoning. In chapter 8, we see him re- bringing to his disciples an important decision, an important question, I say, should say, and they make an important decision. Jesus is taking them on tour. He's teaching them. He's talking to them. And at some point, here near the base of Mount Hermon, Uh, or at least that's where I'm believing it is, and that's where we're going to assume for the time being. There in the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is, by the way, at the foot of Mount Hermon, there he asked the the disciples an important question. He says, what are people saying about me? What are people saying? More literally, who do men say that I am? Now, understand, I'm convinced that Jesus was not seeking after some kind of an egotistical boost. He wasn't looking for a popularity count. He wasn't interested in a survey. He had a point in the question, and the point was clear. Who do, you, who do men say that I am? And so the, the men, the followers, began to answer, maybe one by one. Maybe, maybe one would say something or another. Some say you're uh, Jeremiah, and some say you're Elijah. Some say you're John the Baptist. And as they go down this list of orators that were powerful in ancient Hebrew history, Jesus stops them. And he says, but who do you say that I am? Jesus is getting to a point He's about to make an important point about who he is. Peter, we might expect, Peter's always the one to speak up. Peter gives an answer, and Peter's answer happens to be spot on. Peter says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, there's so much in that that we don't have time to unpack today, but You can check out our more video. It's on our website. You can go there. There's more on that. Pastor Jeff will be unpacking that a little bit, and that'll be an exciting thing for you to look at. But I want to think about Peter's statement just a minute. He said, you are the Christ. You are the Messiah. You are the anointed of God. That's what it means. They knew exactly what he was talking about. You see, for, for all the prophets of ancient Israel had been talking about a coming kingdom and a coming king. And this coming kingdom would restore the glory of Israel. And the coming king would rule and reign in Jerusalem and would dispel the enemies. 
So you can imagine how the excitement begins to build there at the foot of the mountain. You can see the excitement begin to build in these close followers because now, finally, after years of hearing from the prophets, the king is come. The kingdom of God is come. That's how Jesus opened it up. You remember the first chapter of Mark, Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. In other words, it's here. <laughs> he said, it's now. Now they're excited. They can't wait. Not only has the king come, not only is the kingdom going to be established, not only is there going to be a reign in Jerusalem, but they're going to be the right-hand and left-hand guys. They're going to be the cabinet, if you will. They're going to be his closest leaders. They're going to be close to him. They're going to have a, an audience with the king. Who would have thought it from fishermen and tax collectors and zealots? Who would have thought that they would be in the king's court? And so they're excited. And everything is all wonderful. And they are on top of the world. But just as quickly as their enthusiasm rose, just as quickly as they get this excitement, it all begins to languish away. Jesus' next words will begin to arrest them. His next words will begin to confuse them and to confound them. In chapter 8 of Mark, listen to what happens. Just after Peter's announcement, Jesus says, or Mark reports in verse 31, And he, that is Jesus, began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And be killed. They weren't ready for that. What king announces his kingship and announces the coming of his kingdom and says, and then by the way, uh, I'm going to be killed. But then he adds something that I'm not sure they heard at this point. I'm not sure how much they understood at this point. Perhaps their grief, perhaps their languishing spirits. I don't know. But he clear tells them, but after three days, I will rise again. And then Mark adds something curious. He says, and he said this plainly. He really wanted them to get this. He didn't want it to go by them. He didn't want them to miss it. He said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Doesn't that sound just like Peter? Peter, what are you doing rebuking the Lord? What are you doing trying to rebuke Jesus? He just said he's going to be king. He, he's just told of his death, his resurrection. Peter's just made this incredible statement showing that God has revealed something special to him. And then he tries to rebuke Jesus. Took him aside, began to rebuke him. And then in verse 33 it says, But turning and seeing his disciples... He, that is Jesus, rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. What was Peter's problem? Not that he was trying to face Jesus, not that he was confronting so much, but he had the wrong picture. He had the whole wrong idea. He was trying to see the kingdom through his own eyes. He was trying to see the kingdom from an earthly perspective. And Jesus said, wait a minute, you don't understand, Peter. This is a different kind of kingdom. I'm a different kind of king. It's not what you expected. It's not what you expect from me nor from the kingdom. But this is what God has put together. Now, evidently, Peter, the others have already forgotten that Jesus' early words were, I didn't come to patch up the old. I came to introduce the new. I didn't come to patch up the old kingdom. I came to introduce a new kingdom. And they're beginning now to find out, and we'll continue to find out, just how new this kingdom idea, this kingdom ideology really was. Verse 34, 
calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, now listen, if that wasn't all bad enough, it's going to get harder. If anyone would come after me, Jesus said, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Now they are surely deflated. Jesus is saying, I'm a king, but I'm a king going to a cross. I'm a king that will have a throne, but for now I'm going to a cross. And if you want to follow, if you want to follow me, you've got to come to the cross as well. Well, the followers were deflated. They were confounded. They were confused. They were frustrated. I'm sure they were sad. Perhaps wondering, well, did we make a mistake in leaving our nets? I don't know what all thoughts went through them. And a lot of that's conjecture, but I'm pretty sure they were messed up. Because we read now into our text in chapter 9, beginning with verse 2, we read these words. Mark starts off the account by saying, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. There's our thought about Hermon. Let them up a high mountain by themselves. Now think about that. After six days. One of the other gospel accounts, I think it was Luke, says after eight days. And it's simple to explain. Luke includes the, fact, the first day where the things happened and this day on Transfiguration where um, Jesus is going to take up the story. But for six days, there's nothing recorded. There's nothing happening. At least in Scripture, at least in the written text, we don't have any conversation, we don't have any miracles, we don't, we don't see any wonders and signs, we don't hear of any teachings. There's just a gap. After six days, it takes them up on the mountain. Now that may be insignificant, and it may be just the way the writers all write it. It is interesting, though, that all the writers mention this gap. I think there's more than just a coincidence, I think, as many have speculated, that Jesus is making a point, that the gospel writers are making a point after six days. Sometimes we have to go through periods of grieving, don't we? Sometimes we have to go through periods where we wrestle with things, things that are frustrating us, things that are confounding us, things that we don't understand, things that we're wrestling with. Sometimes we just need some space. We just need some time. We need to chew on it. We need to mull it over, right? I don't know if that's what's happening, but I know this. For six days, they wallow in their disappointment. And then Jesus is going to do something that's going to change everything. Something's going to happen now that becomes a turning point in this whole story. Something's going to happen that's going to turn us in a different direction, not just in a story, but frankly, the entire Gospel of Mark. Really, we're at a sort of a halfway point. We're certainly at a, a, an important conjecture uh, in the, the story. There's certainly a point where we're going to see a turn for the last half of the book. Those of us who are sports fans, you understand turning points, right? You understand those critical moments when something's happening in a game and everything is going one way and then something happens, whether if it's football, maybe a pass interception or maybe it's a fumble or, or maybe it's a crucial penalty or, or, or maybe in a baseball game it's a crucial strikeout. I don't know what it is, but, but those moments when things turn, things shift, well, things are about to turn. The first half of this book, we've been interested in seeing about the kingdom and, and, and the throne and the crown and how Jesus is the king of this new kingdom. And now 
we see Jesus heading for the cross. He literally is turning. In fact, the gospel writers put it this way. They say from this point, he sets his face toward Jerusalem. Meaning, he's determined now. He has the cross in his focus. And something shifted in this momentum. So what's the occasion? What is this turning point? It starts with this transfiguration. It starts with this supernatural event that occurs on the mountain that they're going to go up. It says there, we just read it, that he took his men, he took three of them, Peter, James, and John, and they went up to this high mountain. Now, mountains are interesting in Scripture, and there's all kinds of things we could talk about when we talk about mountains. There's, there's a few special stories that we could relate, but one that particularly uh, brings, comes to mind when we think of this story, because you may remember another mount called Sinai. You remember, may remember in Israel's history that Moses brought the people of God to the foot, to the base of Mount Sinai, very similar to how Jesus had brought his men, his followers, to the base of Mount Hermon. And then you may recall that Moses gathered some and took them up on the Mount of Sinai. And there on Mount Sinai, you may recall, if you don't, you can read all about it in the, in the Torah, in the books of the law. Moses went up on the mountain, not this mountain, Mount Sinai, but the similarities. He went up on the mountain, and there he was approaching God. There a cloud. God speaks out of a cloud with thunderings and with lightnings. And, and, and Moses is asking God to see his glory. God, can I just see your face? And God says, you can't see see my face, Moses. If you see my face, you'll surely die. It was an incredible moment. And all of the Hebrews understood that story and knew that story. And now, in a similar fashion, Jesus has brought his disciples to the foot of the mound. He's taken three of them, Peter, James, John. By the way, don't miss the significance of that. Those three men will become very important leaders in the New Testament church. They'll become leaders in the church that's yet to come, in the movement, the gathering that's yet to follow. He takes them up the mountain. And once again, we see the glory of God, but in a different fashion. Let's read on. Verse 2 says that he was transfigured before them. That is, something supernatural happened to transform his figure before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could reach for them. And there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Well, there's another appearance from Moses. Next verse. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Let's hold it there just a moment. So Jesus takes these men up the mountain, and look what begins to happen. It's amazing that they see Jesus transformed, and they see a, a, a preview almost of the glory of God. The, the glory of God radiating from him. Now remember, it just occurred to me when Moses is on Mount Sinai and, and the cloud of God appears, he didn't even see his face and yet still Moses shined, glimmered. His face was a reflection like the moon reflects the sun. He had a reflection of God's glory, God's glory so bright that it's reflected on his face when he comes down. And here, once again, we see that these men come up and Jesus is radiant beyond what they can even explain, what they can even come to understand. His clothes are radiant, uh, immensely white. He appears to them, and, and there stands Moses 
and Elijah, two men. I, I, what are those for? Therefore, Eddie, I, listen, I don't know. People have been arguing over the meaning of these two men for centuries, and they will be centuries to come. As a matter of fact, I'm pretty sure they're going to be arguing about this until Jesus himself comes back and gives us an explanation. Could be that, that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets, two major sections of the Old Testament Scripture. The Jewish Scripture is based upon the Torah, the law, and the, the prophets, the Nebuim, and the writings. And so no doubt it could represent that. Could represent other things. I don't know. Here's the point that I want you to see. What I want you to see is these are in the conversation. These are here with Jesus, and they're seeing these three men, and these three, or these men, these two men, and Jesus, and they're standing there, and they're in awe, and they're taking it in, and they're beginning to see the, the difficulty of this moment. I can almost see that it's hard even to explain. And then it says they were talking with Jesus. Look at verse 5. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Now, what in the world is he talking about? Again, we're not sure. Some people believe that he was just so caught up in the moment that he wanted to make a tabernacle for each one, a temple of sorts. The word tent is similar as it brings to our mind the Old Testament tabernacle, which, by the way, on Sinai, God gave instructions to Moses for that tabernacle. Some believe it might be that he was wanting, suggesting to make little temples, little shrines there. They had just been to Caesarea Philippi. And by the way, in Caesarea Philippi, there were temples to many gods. There were idols to many gods in the cleft of the rock. And who knows, maybe that's still on Peter's mind. We don't know that. Maybe it does have to do with the tabernacle. Maybe it has to do with someone suggested that the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tents might have been there at that time. Uh, the Feast of Tabernacles, we call it, or it's called. And, and, and maybe it was that, that they thought, you know what, everybody has, but I don't know. Peter didn't know. So Peter has to say something. He says, I, Peter spoke up. Why? Verse 8, because he didn't know what to say because they were, what? Terrified. Why were they terrified? That thought intrigued me. Why were they terrified? Had to be at least in part that they saw this grandeur, the glory, the majesty of this scene. And, and, and I'm convinced that many times we don't understand the, the, the holiness of God and the grandeur of God and to see it. Perhaps overwhelm them. Or perhaps they remembered back to another mountain. Perhaps they remembered back to another mountain called Sinai. And perhaps they remembered that God had said, if you see me, you're going to die. Perhaps they were afraid that they were going to die, having seen this thing. But they're terrified. And then something happens. The next verse, verse 7. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, just like at Sinai. This is my beloved son, Listen to him. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I think if we might paraphrase it, we might just say, sit down, be quiet, and listen. There's something you need to hear. There's something you need to know. And suddenly, verse 8 says, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. <laughs> they just saw something all right. While they were no doubt at least intrigued with Moses and Elijah, 
And the fact that Moses and Elijah are in a conversation with Jesus and that Moses and Elijah that they have read about and heard about years in their scriptures is now standing before them. Suddenly, Moses and Elijah are gone and there's no one there but Jesus. Here, I think we not only see the uniqueness of Jesus, we see the supremacy of Jesus. Not only do we see that this new king is unique in that he is establishing this kingdom in a different fashion, we now see that he is supreme and that every knee bows to him and that he is far more significant than either Moses or Elijah. And by the way, we could add King David and we could add all other Hebrews, all the other heroes of the Hebrew faith because Jesus alone is the king. Jesus alone is the one to worship. Jesus alone is the one who is supreme. I think also there's another point being made here. They're looking at this scenario and surely they're beginning to understand there's a difference in knowing Jesus and who he is or what he came to do and in seeing him in all of his glory. Well, this is the same Peter who just days ago pronounced that he knew that he was the Christ. He knew that he was the, he was the Messiah. He, knows, he believed in God going up the mountain. But now he's experienced a level of worship, frankly. A level of worship that they had never attained to before. A level of worship in seeing the glory of God fully revealed. The glory of God in a sense that was incredible. And they understood. Seeing Jesus is different. And by the way, I think we need to understand that the only response that we have today to seeing Jesus in all of his glory is worship. That is worship. That is worship. We see his glory. You say, Pastor Eddie, can we see his glory? I, I'm convinced. I wonder if John, he's one of the ones that were up here, I wonder if John was remembering this moment when he penned his gospel. You remember how he opened his gospel? He opened his gospel differently than Matthew, Mark, or Luke. He opened his gospel by declaring that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, talking about the time when Jesus came down to the earth. And then he said, and the Word, that is Jesus, was made flesh and dwelt among us. <clears throat> and then he said, and we beheld his glory. The glory as of the only begotten Son of God. Well, for John, that was a reality. Not just a thought, but a reality. We beheld His glory. And then he adds this. We beheld His glory as of the only begotten of God, full of grace and truth. By the way, I'm convinced that's how we see His glory. You say, well, I'm waiting for a figure. I'm waiting for an experience like, 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 like Peter. I'm going to go up on the mountain and wait for God to show me His grandeur, His glory. Listen, God has already pointed out His glory in His Word. And when you see the face of Jesus, the person, the nature, the character of Jesus, when you see grace and truth, when you understand the truth of who He is and the grace that He extends to you, the response is to worship, because therein you find glory. And so this is an incredible moment. Jesus is spending this moment with his disciples, with Peter, James, John. They come down from the mountain. There's a discussion that happens that I'm not going to get into this morning. You'll have to follow that through. 
Then he gets with the other disciples and he moves into another place of ministry. And here's what he does. He immediately turns his face toward the next mountain. The next mountain. The next mountain we're sure of. We think Hermon might be the place where Jesus was transfigured, but we know the next mountain he's facing is Mount Moriah. Mount Moriah, the very mountain upon which Abraham had brought his son Isaac to offer as a sacrifice. But this time, Jesus would not be bringing a lamb to the mountain. He would not be bringing a, a, a sibling or a son to the mountain. He would be going to the mountain alone himself, and he would become the sacrifice that God had spoken to Moses about years ago. He would be going to the Mount of Moriah, to Mount Calvary, as we know it best. He'd be going there carrying a Roman cross. I know that's a strange picture. The king carrying a cross. We're going to see for the next several weeks that the king and the crown and the cross can't be separated. But as a matter of fact, they're woven together. We see him head to Mount Calvary. And there at Mount Calvary, we're going to see a contrast to this experience. Because where in the Mount of Transfiguration was a moment of private glory, there the cross on the Mount called Calvary, the cross will be a public shame. People will walk by and spit upon Him and call Him names, intentionally public to show the crimes that He had committed, only He had not committed any crimes. We'll see the contrast in the fact that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus is surrounded by two prophets, and on the cross on Mount Moriah, He's surrounded by two criminals. We see the contrast that on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus shines with glory. But on the cross, on Mount Moriah, he's bloodied because he takes the sin of mankind upon himself. His body no longer radiant with white, cleaning, beaming robes, but his naked body ripped and torn by Roman whips, by nails and spikes, and eventually a sword piercing his side. All to let his blood flow for you and for me. This is where he's going. He's preparing his disciples. He's told them, I'm going to die. And they're not wanting to hear that. Just after our story, if you read on into chapter 9 and chapter 10, you see that he tells them again, I'm, I'm going to die. And three days later, I'll be res resurrected. I'll, I'll live again. But I'm going to die. And they still don't want to hear it. Let's change the subject. They're still talking about the kingdom. And who's going to be greatest in the kingdom? And he says, wait a minute. You don't understand. I am a king, but I'm a king with a cross. And I'm setting my face to the cross. And this is where I'm going. And if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to go with me. If you're going with me, you have to take up your cross daily. Deny yourself and follow me. And that's his call to us. His call to us is to follow Him, to deny ourselves, to take up our cross, and to follow Him. You see, this kingdom is unique because this kingdom has begun already, but not yet. It's unique because the cross and the crown go together. It's unique because the nature of our King. So here's a takeaway for today. I want to leave with you. Jesus is a king, but a king headed to a cross. Now watch this. If we want to worship him, we've got to go to the cross too. 
that's where we go. You say, well, how can I worship a king who's on a cross? That just doesn't resonate with me. I know we've quoted him a lot, but I want to quote Tim Keller one more time. I saw this in a tweet he put out this week. I think it's pertinent. He said, the height of the Lord's greatness was revealed in his ability and willingness to become weak and die for us. We don't think of someone going to the cross as being mighty and strong like we think of kings. And yet, I think Keller's right. He demonstrates his strength. He demonstrates his ability by becoming weak on our behalf and becoming a sacrifice for our sins so that he can offer you and I eternal life. And you know what? That offer is made to you right now this morning. Right now. It is no accident that you're sitting in front of your screen right now or you're listening in your podcast. And and it is no accident that this message is coming to you because you know what? God is inviting you to become a part of his kingdom. He's inviting you to accept his gift of eternal life. He's inviting you to turn from your sins and place your trust in this work at the cross that Jesus is all about. Accept his gift of forgiveness and eternal salvation. You say, I don't know enough about that purpose. Well, that's where we're going for the next few weeks. The first few weeks we've talked about all about who he is. The next few weeks we're going to be talking about his purpose and what he's come for. And it's going to be as thrilling as the beginning because we're going to see that he came to die for you, to give you eternal life. There's people online waiting for you right now. There's people waiting for you to call. There's people waiting for you to text. There's people waiting for you to chat. There's people waiting for you to hear from you, to pray with you, to talk with you, to speak with you, to try to help explain things to you that maybe I just glossed over or missed. There's people waiting, but it's your decision. Will you call? Will you decide to follow Jesus? I don't know, Pastor Eddie. I'm telling you, I know it's not an easy call. Because he says, you too must pick up your cross and follow me. And those of you, those of us who name the name of Christ, the challenge for us today is, do we see the real Jesus for who he is, or have we put him in a box that we can understand and that we can deal with and that we're comfortable with? What the disciples found out at the Mount of Transfiguration and just before and just after is that they had put Jesus in a box And he was not going to fit their box. And he declared, I am a king, but I'm a king with a cross. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for this scripture. Thank you for what it teaches us, what we learn from it. Dear God, I pray that you would speak to our hearts today and draw men, women, boys, and girls to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.